I wonder when you consider the character of God, do you ever have a tendency to think of him as shy, as shy? Paul Forsay and Christopher Bader in their 2010 book entitled America's Four Gods, what, what we say about God and what that says about us, quote in their first chapter, Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a, is a popular Christian author. He's written several books on the nature of God. And Yancey believes that God's rather shy. As he explains, quote, by shy, well, I don't mean bashful or timid, like a junior high boy at a party. Rather, Yancey writes, God is rather shy to intervene into our lives. Friends, I wonder if you have ever characterized God in this way when challenges arise in your life. Is this what the Bible says about the character of God? Is this how, he's, is this how Scripture characterizes God? Well, to address that question, we need to look no further than the passage that we have this evening. So if you would turn in your guide, you're probably already there in your Bible. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Follow along with me as I read this immensely important chapter and verse. Quote, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, well, I'll pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know, Scripture is full of grand epical events as high watermarks in redemptive history. And the most important turning point in the Bible's storyline before this event of the Passover in Exodus, apart from the creation, the fall, the flood, what was actually God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And God gives this promise, if you recall, to Abraham by means of a sign. In fact, every time God makes a promise or a covenant, he always accompanies it with a sign, something to point to a larger reality of the promise that's made. And we especially saw that this morning that sign as we observe the Lord's Supper. Well, in the opening chapters of Exodus, we begin to see the Israelites' slavery in Egypt as a bit of a problem. And the problem is of this unfulfilled covenant promise that God had made. Though as a people, they had become numerous, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham about his descendants. However, they did not have a land of their own. And yet, as we read, the Passover, well, the Passover lies at the very heart of how God's going to rectify this. And he's going to do that through the means of salvation and exodus for his people. And in reading how God brings the salvation is to read a drama like no other drama. In Exodus, God provides two acts of salvation in this drama. Act one. By means of the judgment of God, there is a salvation from the hand of the Egyptian bondage. It's a deliverance from Pharaoh. Act two, 
Well, there's another means of salvation. And this is by the means of the Passover sacrifice. And here there's an even greater salvation. Not just the deliverance from Pharaoh, but there's deliverance from God. The Israelites will be delivered from God by God. So the first nine plagues, I know that you remember them in Exodus, they presented actually no real danger to the Israelites. God's judgment fell on the Egyptians, remember? In redeeming Israel, God turned the Nile River into blood. God darkened the sun so that the land was engulfed in perpetual night. God sent a manifestation or an infestation of frogs. He sent an infestation of gnats. God sent an infestation of flies. Brothers and sisters, I got to tell you, if I were Pharaoh with the flies, I were probably thrown in the towel on that. And yet, Pharaoh did not throw in the towel. Pharaoh continued, we're told, to harden his heart toward God. It was this last plague, however, it was this last plague that was the most horrific, the most terrifying. For God swore to kill the firstborn of every creature in Egypt, including the house of Pharaoh. And yet, even the firstborn of Israel would not be spared unless the Israelites obeyed God's command. Friends, are you willing to obey God? Are you obeying God? Well, remember what God instructed them to do. God said, the blood well, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see that sign of blood, will all pass over you. And no plague will, be, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what's perhaps a little surprising here is that this plague, it's this one that comes with a condition. If the Israelites, if they didn't obey God, they would fall under his wrath. Since God's wrath was not just against Israel or against um, Egypt alone and their sin and idolatry, but also against Israel as well. And one of the many things that we learn here about God is that he, the Holy One, well, he's no respecter of person when it comes to sin. Unless the Israelites figuratively covered themselves in the blood by literally covering their doorposts with it, well, they too would be subject to God's wrath. So what did this blood of these, these slaughtered lambs, what did these lambs temporarily, the blood of these lambs temporarily do that night in Egypt? Well, the blood turned away the wrath of God. The blood would forego their death. The blood satisfied God's justice. The blood was a sign for God to pass over each house. But did you catch this? It was for a time, a short time. The blood of lambs satisfied for that night, but each year those sacrifices had to be made anew over and over again. Israel was in need of a sign, and they were in desperate need of it, one in which God would pass over their sin, not for a night, 
but friends, actually forever. Friends, you and I are no different, are we? We are in dire need of salvation from God, by God. When Jesus steps into the scene in the New Testament, as we've been, as Pastor Brad has been preaching through him, Jesus was announced as the Lamb of God, remember? Who takes away not only our sins, John 1, 29, but he also turns away God's wrath from us. In fact, Paul couldn't make it any clearer, could he, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when he says that Christ, well, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Here Paul is urging the Corinthian church that as a redeemed people, by Jesus' sacrificial death, that there will be no place for immorality among them. And if you read this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul presses into that imagery of the Passover even further by urging them to rid themselves of the yeast of corruption and turn to the unleavened bread of truth. Paul was greatly concerned, by, and when drawing upon the scene of the Passover, he was concerned of the sin that was infiltrating this church. My Christian friend, I wonder, might this describe you? Do you think of your sin in your entertainment of your sin as permeating every part of your life like yeast does bread? I wonder if you ever have a temptation like I do to treat your sin like some people treat a swimming pool. What if I built an Olympic swimming pool in my backyard, the right depth, the right water, perfect temperature? I ordered a rope from Amazon that was gold-plated, had a, a nice sweet buoy with it, and I sectioned off one corner of the pool. And every day when I go take my laps, I use that corner of the pool to pee in. And I swim underneath the rope when I'm done, and I go right back to my laps. Friends, you laugh, and I do too, but as grotesque and as crass as that idea is, how's that any different than what Paul's pushing at here with the corruption of sin in our lives? If we try to segment it away, we're only deceiving ourselves. And the Passover helps us to see that. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, will you live? Will you live because of the blood of the Lamb of God that covers, that covers your sin? The shedding of Jesus' blood was a sign for what it represents. It represents the perfect, sinless life of Christ poured out into his death for us. I know you hear that a lot. We need to hear that a lot. And sometimes those words float over our head and we, we, they go right past us. But think about what those words really do mean. Christ gave his life on our behalf. As one, one pastor put it that I read, the redeemed do not receive a blood transfusion from God 
what we actually see, receive is a life transfusion. His death for our death. His life for our life. Friend, at the end of your life, at the end of my life, or when the Lamb of God, Christ, returns in power and in judgment, whose blood will you have over the doorpost of your life? Will you have smeared the blood of your own perceived self-righteousness over a doorpost that you've pridefully built and polished of which the Lord will not pass over? Or will you be covered in the blood of the only Savior? You can be covered in the righteousness of Christ. Will you? Friends sitting here tonight, will you repent and believe? So do you agree with Yancey Phillips about God? Is he shy? Is he shy to intervene in your life? Brothers and sisters, the whole arc of Scripture speaks to the fact that God is not shy, nor is he silent, especially when it comes to our sin. He acts. The sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, has intervened on behalf of his people. As the Puritan theologian Thomas Watson, I was reading this past week, so memorably observes this. He says, and only the Puritans could say this, right? Did Christ open his sides for thee? Then will he not also open his mouth to plead for thee? Brothers and sisters, the long arc of redemption pictured as a sign of blood over the doorpost of the Israelites' homes pointed to something greater, as all signs do. It pointed to Christ who came, lived a perfect life, obeying God fully and completely, dying a death that we should have died, facing the crushing wrath that actually we should face. You know, as the writer of Hebrews offers us a really interesting picture into the Passover, a really interesting insight into this, into this event that takes place. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore, by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and, and sprinkled blood. Why? so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This was an act of confidence by Moses that the Lord God would indeed intervene on their behalf. Friends, all arcs have a beginning and an end. And this redemptive arc from the Passover forward ends in a triumphal prelude, a benediction to the arc of redemptive history. In other words, there is coming a time when we will no longer need to walk by faith, but rather we will walk by sight. And what glorious things we'll see. As a matter of fact, John in Revelation tells us where the end of this arc will be and how it will go. John writes 
in Revelation 1, 5 through 6, about this day, this great day. And he says this. He says this, and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, he's the only faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the great day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, will he pass over you in judgment because of the blood of Christ and the Lamb? Or will you be left standing before him with the doorpost of your life trembling in your hands? Let's pray. Sovereign God, Lord, you are not shy. And thanks be to God that you're not. Rather, you're holy. And it's because of your holiness that you act, that you intervene. Praise be to God you have in your goodness and your kindness intervene on behalf of your people. And I pray, Lord, that let your people tonight, as we sing of your power to save, God, I pray that you would let us to be thankful and grateful to you for the mighty things that you've done. We pray these things and we ask them in the name of the Lamb, in the name of Christ. Amen.